Today's sermon text is Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. It can be found in the Bible in the rack in front of you on page 976. Hear the word of the Lord. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Would you pray with me as we begin this morning? Heavenly Father, you have caused all of your word to be written for our instruction. So would you help us now so that we may hear and understand and inwardly digest it. Lord, give us patience and comfort by your holy word that we may embrace and hold fast to the hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Sometime in the past year, my daughter Ruth, who is four, she was three at the time, uh, maybe eight months or so ago, she got her first pair of glasses. And since then, we've come to call ourselves the Glasses Buddies, and I will call myself, we'll call ourselves that forever because I love her and she loves being called that. So we're Glasses Buddies. And I told her this, I'm sure she doesn't appreciate it, but I remember when I got my first pair of glasses. I, I wasn't in, I wasn't three or four, I was more like sixth grade, and I, I guess until sixth grade, I just assumed that I wasn't looking at other people when we were looking at the board. I just assumed words were blurry when they were far from you and that everybody kind of viewed the world that way. Mom knew better. She told me that wasn't normal, that I was having to squint that much and that I couldn't read the board. That trees were like blurry, furry objects when they were at a certain distance. And so I went to an optometrist and... Uh, I remember, I remember walking out of the optometrist's office with my first pair of glasses. And the first, first thing that just struck me was a tree. It was beautiful. It was amazing. Instead of this, this kind of blurry object that I, I knew there's leaves on trees, but then I could see, like, 
Look at it. It's glorious. Now, the, the tree didn't change. Right? It was the same. Everybody around me could see it. They probably could see it better when they before with, without glasses. I just needed them to be able to see it rightly. But having those glasses meant that I could actually enjoy and appreciate and marvel at what was there before us. For these past three weeks, we've been talking in the book of Ephesians. We've been walking through the book of Ephesians and looking at the blessings that God has given to his people in salvation. What it is that he has given us in Christ. And regardless of what we think about those blessings, we, they're, they're true. They're there whether you see them or not. But for those who have the Holy Spirit and for those of you who have trusted in Christ, the good news of Ephesians is that those truths, they're actually applied to you. They are true, not just out there, but God says those are true for you. You have felt and seen those things. And this morning in our passage, what you heard just read by Becca, my hope is that we would see more clearly. That's what Paul prays for, that the Holy Spirit would help us to know And to embrace these truths. That we would come to understand them better. And that our joy will be full. Here's here's the main point of this passage. Seeing the real Christ. The risen, resurrected, reigning Lord. It changes us. You'll see there on your notes. If you're able to get a note sheet, I may not have printed enough. I'm sorry if that's the case. Uh, We're going to walk through this text. I'll, I'll keep you with me. You don't need the note sheet, I promise. We're going to walk through this just by asking three different questions kind of as we walk through this passage before us. First, what is it that God wants us to see? Where do we see it? And specifically, where do we see God's power? Which I think is the, the primary thrust of the text. And then what changes? I said this changes us. What changes in us if we see these things rightly? And my prayer for us this week is what Paul has been praying. I've been praying for you, friends, brothers and sisters, that we would know the enduring hope that we have because of Christ, that we would see the value that we have in belonging to him as his inheritance, and especially that we would know God's power, that we would see God's power at work for the good of his people. Okay, so if you've been with us the past few weeks, Paul starts the book of Ephesians, like I said, with this long eulogy. He does his normal thing of, hey, it's Paul, writing to you, Corinthians, grace to you. And then he starts right out by saying, blessed be God. And he spends 12 verses talking about the blessings that are enjoyed by Christians who belong to him. So we've spent three weeks talking about being adopted by the Father and redeemed by the Son and sealed and belonging to the Spirit. That God will complete his work in us. And as Paul kind of reflects on these realities, he, he thinks back through this. And then he's thinking to this church he's writing to. And he can't help but be driven towards thanksgiving. That's what you see. If you have your Bible open, this would be helpful. You may want to keep your scripture open there to Ephesians 1. But here's what, what he says in verses 15 and 16 again. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints... I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Paul knows that the salvation he spent 12 verses talking about, that it's true in the lives of these Ephesians. And he knows that because he sees two things in their life. He sees first, a visible faith in the Lord Jesus. They're actually acting as if they trust him with their lives. And the second thing he sees in them is that they are loving toward all the saints. There's tangible expressions of love. 
And for Paul, he, he sees those things and he can't help but just burst out in thanksgiving. And in thinking through this text over the past week, I have found these words just to be my own. So I know there are many guests and visitors here. I'm so glad you're here. But to, to the members of Philadelphia Baptist Church and those who are, Lord willing, joining next week, over the last three months, my family and I, as we, as we have transitioned here, we have been overwhelmed with gratitude at what we see as your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints. And I, I'm, I've been here for three months. I'm just getting to know you. And I'm so grateful for that. Uh, just one, one quick story among many that I could tell. Last Sunday, uh, our daughter Ruth... Sorry, Ruth comes up a lot in the sermon. My, I, I love you both, too. Um, my daughter Ruth came up and, and she told me at, after service, she was like, Hey, Daddy, can I... Uh, can I tell you my Bible verse? And she spouted off Isaiah forty twenty eight, just like that. And I'd love to tell you that's because like I'm a rock star at scripture memory in my house. But it's because Paula Pegues and Anna Andrew Urig have a living faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's because they're showing the love of all their saints by teaching our children. Brothers and sisters, the Lord has laid you heavy on my mind and heart. And in every prayer of mine, I am thanking the Lord for your faithfulness to God and for your love for his people. And these two verses, they don't need lots of explanation, but they can be applied again and again and again. And I have relished applying them this week and to encourage you even to apply them this week. Now, Paul moves from this prayer of thanksgiving, he goes straight into a prayer of intercession, of asking God to do something in the lives of these Ephesians. You see his request there in verses 17 and 18. He's praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Okay, so he's not praying that they would receive the Holy Spirit the first time. We read in verses 13 and 14, they have the Holy Spirit. They are Christians sealed by it. He's, he's instead asking that the Holy Spirit would open their eyes for better understanding. He's asking that they would have spiritual glasses, that they would get a stronger prescription. They don't need new revelation. They need God to help them press his wisdom and his revelation into every nook and cranny of their lives. And this is where we get to the first question. Paul says, I want this spirit of wisdom and revelation in your life to see three things. What is it that God wants us to see? First, he wants us to see the hope we have because of his calling. That's there in verse 18. You may have spiritual insight that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Now, why, why does that matter for these people? In part, it matters because hope was like a new thing for them. Okay, Ephesians 2.12, if, you have, if you're open in Ephesians 1, you can flip maybe one page, it may be on the same page. Ephesians 2.12, Paul reminds these Gentile Christians, what was your life like before Christ? It says, remember, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope. Without God in the world. Well, that doesn't mean they didn't feel some hope at some times, right? I, I mentioned this a, a few weeks ago. But, but they likely cast a lot of their hopes upon the false gods that were being worshipped in their city around them. They were the, they, that was the place where they said, this will protect me from harm. They'll make sure that I'm prosperous, that I'll have a good life. 
But that hope, Paul tells them, is blind. God tells them is that hope will disappoint them so much so that it says that's, that's no hope. You are without hope in the world. And I'm sure you know as well as I that false hope was not just like an ancient problem. False hope is alive and well even today. I found an article written about five years ago. Somebody went and asked 25 strangers uh, at the, you know, a, a New Year article. What do, what do you hope for in this coming year? And some of those were very modest hopes. So one man just said, I, I hope that the Detroit Lions would win the Super Bowl that year. And his wife, who is even more modest and more realistic, says, I hope the Detroit Lions make the playoffs this year. And they were both very wrong. His wife, uh, some of their hopes, some of the people's hopes were more earnest, more heartfelt. I hope one says that the government will give us the cure for cancer. Another said they hope for peace in Palestine. Someone with a lot of confidence said, I don't hope, I just know. This is the year I win the lottery. But friends, for all of those hopes, from the mundane to the deathly serious, every single one of those was disappointed in the end. And even for some of the people who maybe their hopes were realized, I would be willing to bet their hopes didn't quite give them the fulfillment they thought. Let's just assume, let's say the Lions win the Super Bowl. So what? What kind of hope is that? Hope apart from Christ is at best just a good wish. It's a longing for something to come true, but with no guarantee that it will. But hope that is grounded in God's calling Paul says here, is no mere wish. It doesn't just ebb and flow with our circumstances or how we feel that day or even what's going on in our lives. It is firm and fixed on the rock who is Christ. The New City Catechism, it's based on the Heidelberg Catechism, which you heard read earlier today. It begins with this question. This is the first question. Like the the thing it says, if you know anything, we want you to know this. What is our only hope in life and death? That we are not our own, but belong, body and soul, both in life and in death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Apart from Christ, your hope will disappoint you. It will leave you high and dry, but belonging to God, being called by Him, we have a hope that is secure. One that does not disappoint. Second thing Paul wants us to see, see the worth We have because we belong to him. See the worth that God's people have because we belong to him. Okay, look at the end of verse 8. So he's praying they would have spiritual eyes open, that they would see what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Okay, so last week in verse 13, we talked about inheritance, but we talked there in verse 13, it's the inheritance that God has given to us. It's what we look forward to belonging to God. But here things are just flipped around slightly. Okay, so just look at this and look at whose inheritance it is in verse uh, verse 18. It's not ours. It's not the church's. It's his inheritance. It's God's inheritance. And what is God's inheritance in this phrase? It's in all the saints. All of God's people are his treasured possession. And how how does God describe that? It is not ho-hum. Not just like a modest little inheritance. God's inheritance in the saints, it says, are glorious and rich. Paul is saying, I hope that the Holy Spirit would help you to see just how dearly God values you. 
how much he gave for you. Now, in hearing that, there are two kind of reactions I want to encourage you to avoid. And one, I want to say this is what it should drive us to. Okay, so on the one hand, some people may come and hear that. Like, I am one of God's chosen, lovely people that he desires and loves. And the response is, of course I am. God is really lucky to have me. I watched a clip this week of a Swedish soccer player, a guy named Zlatan Ibrahimovic, that I had to pronounce like five times in my office to make sure I got that right. And he's a great player. Like he, he scores goals that just look like they're impossible. Uh, for a few years back, he moved to Los Angeles. He played for the Los Angeles Galaxy. And when he moved to Los Angeles, he took out a full-page newspaper ad. Kids' newspapers are things that used to be delivered to our front doors, and you would open them and read them. They're about this big. So big ad like this. And all it says on there is, Dear Los Angeles, you're welcome. Signed, Zlatan Ibrahimovic. Cocky. Right? And that, that is not, should not be our approach when we hear that God values us. That he, he wants us with us. It's not, dear God, you're welcome. And if it is, then perhaps we need to do some more meditating on our own sinfulness. But on the other hand, there, there is a response on the other end of the spectrum. One that is not cocky, but that is always cowering. This is an approach to God that assumes that if you belong to God, he is merely tolerating you. He may have get forgiven your sins. He may have sent his son to die in your place. But your approach to him now, he's not all that happy to see you. I think uh, Keith and Kristen Getty, they, they write this song, My Worth is Not in What I Own. I think this song gets this perfectly right. My worth is not in what I own, not in the strength of flesh and bone, but in the costly wounds of love at the cross. Two wonders here that I confess. My worth and my unworthiness. My value fixed, my ransom paid at the cross. God's pleasure in his people shouldn't lead us to cockiness. It shouldn't lead us into cowering. It's meant to leave us with confidence in him. A view of the cross shows us our unworthiness, right? Jesus had to die for his people. There is nothing lovely in us that coerced Jesus to do that. But at the cross, we also see our worth to God, that he would pay the highest possible price to win for himself a people, to buy you, Christian, for his people. And if that is true, then then you, like Paul, Like Jesus, you can approach the throne of grace with confidence that God is delighted that you are there. Here's great news. God looks forward to enjoying his people forever. Heaven is not diminished because you are there. God purchased you that you might be there. He looks forward and relishes the thought of his church being with him forever. The price of that inheritance was paid With the blood of his own son that we spent time meditating on on Friday. And it was not done begrudgingly. It was done with joy. We need to see, Paul wants us to see the value that God's people have because we belong to him. Third, and I think this is kind of the most important. This is where Paul is going to spend the rest of this passage. Where we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning. Paul wants us to see the overwhelming power that God demonstrates for his people. See the overwhelming power that God demonstrates for his people. 
Look at verse 19 of Ephesians chapter 1. Paul's praying that they would have eyes to see what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. It's just a Bible reading tip, but if somebody like piles up that many words to talk about one thing, it means they're trying to emphasize it. So just look at verse 19 and see all the words used for God's power here. Immeasurable greatness, power, working, great might. I read a commentator this week who said, Paul basically exhausts the reservoir of language used to talk about power. God does not like the resources to complete what he sets out to do. He has no rival. He has no equal. And he has not started a project that he could not complete. We'll talk more about this in a minute. But in verse 19, you even see the hint of this. We'll see it again later in a, a later verse. But look at who Paul uses his power for. It's not just a show of force. It's intended to do good toward us who believe. God's power is on the side. It's going with and working for his people. Okay, so those are briefly the the three things. Paul says, I want you to see this. Uh, I said that this last one, God's power, that's the central focus. That's the thing that Paul says, right now, I'm going to pause and look at this. Because as soon as he says, I want you to see this, he's going to point out four places where we see that demonstrated. Okay, so the second question, where do we see God's power? How is it? That God has demonstrated his power for his people. Okay, let me read. I'm going to read verses 20 through 23. And we'll briefly walk through these four places. So I want you to see God's power worked out according to God's might. Verse 20. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And above every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Four places we see God's power demonstrated. First, we see God's power in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It's an Easter sermon. You knew it was in here somewhere, right? But one of the reasons why I love this text and love using this for an Easter Sunday, is because the resurrection isn't just like scattered in the Gospels, like kind of at the end, and then 1 Corinthians 15. The resurrection is everywhere over the New Testament. Okay, so think about even to like the first Christian sermon, the first person to get in front of people and say, Jesus is alive. In Acts chapter 2, Peter stands before a crowd, and this is, this is the moves that he makes. Acts 2, 22, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Pause real quick. That's like three years of Jesus' ministry wrapped up in a sentence. Next, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. Because it was not possible for him to be held by it. That's the same good news that we proclaim today. If you doubt that you are sinful, if you doubt that God is a loving God, Peter says, and we would say, look to the cross. There you see that displayed perfectly. And if you doubt that God has power to do anything about that, 
look to the resurrection. See there God demonstrating his mighty outstretched arm as he raises his son from the dead. And with the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, a whole host of things kind of flow out from that. These next three things, if Jesus lies in the tomb, these next three things mean nothing. They don't happen. But because Jesus walks out, these these three things are true as well. We see the power of God and the enthronement of Jesus at God's right hand. In the resurrection, we believe Jesus physically rose from the dead. That he stepped out of a tomb with a glorified human body, never to die again. And if you ask where Jesus is now, we'd say that he is at the right hand and for all of eternity. He is at the right hand of the throne of God and power. And again, this is another truth that we can, we celebrate Easter every year. You're going to, as long as you're coming to church, going to be constantly reminded of the resurrection. But this is, this is powerful. Even Peter in his first sermon says the resurrection means that Jesus is now the king. He's not just a man. He is the king of all the world. Peter in Acts chapter 2 again, just to go back to the first Christian sermon. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens. But he himself said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord, he's the king, and Christ, the Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. The resurrection of Christ means that he is exalted above all things as Lord, just as David said would happen in Psalm 110, which is quoted there and alluded in our text. And of course, he will be exalted. No one has gained the right to be exalted to the right hand of God. Who else has risen from the dead with the power of an indestructible life? And if he reigns, it means that all things are now under him, which is the third thing that Paul tells us. We see God's power demonstrated in putting all things under Jesus' feet and putting all things under Jesus' feet. That was the place that mankind was supposed to have. Psalm chapter 8, verse 6 actually reflects on this, this, uh, this, this passage in Ephesians is quoting Psalm 8 where we're told of the dignity of humankind that God has put all things under his feet. Remember Adam was meant to have dominion over all things but Adam in the garden he rebelled against God and he did not fulfill that call. But Christ is the new and better Adam. He is the one who perfectly rules and reigns so that all things are under his feet. And in verse 20, you see these words, rule, authority, power, dominion. We read those, and uh, on the surface, they, they look like maybe it's talking about Caesar. Maybe it's talking about uh, a president or a governor. And that, uh, that is truth is, that's true. Jesus is the head over all authority, earthly, heavenly. Here, though, we're talking primarily what these people are seeing and what this text is talking about. These words refer to spiritual beings, to spiritual powers. You can see that more clearly or explicitly in Ephesians 6, right? Maybe you're familiar with the armor of God. You did VBS one day on that and you went home with some armor. Do you remember who it says we're fighting there? We don't war against flesh and blood, not against human beings, but against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers, the present darkness. So from the resurrection into eternity, Jesus reigns 
over every spiritual force arrayed against his people. Satan is a defeated foe. They're not abolished, but defeated. Satan is still, we're told in 1 Peter, he's a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, but this verse tells us he's a lion on a leash. And his defeat is certain in the future. And even today, even today, in this age, in the present, there is not one thing that can be done apart from God's will. So Jesus has all things under his feet, and that makes Jesus the head, which is the last thing where we see a demonstration of God's power. We see it in making Jesus the head of all things for the church. It's another way of pointing to Jesus' authority. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Ephesians, or if you've been to a lot of Christian weddings, when I, and even the first time I read this this week, honestly, if I confess kind of what, what happened this week, I, I read this and I go, he is the head of the church. That's true, and that's right. That's Ephesians 5. We'll actually see that, that later. It's a, a model for Christian marriage, but slow down again, just in Ephesians 1. Look at the text. Look at what Jesus is the head over here. In verse 22, Jesus is the head over all things. Over all things. He is not just the one who rules his church. His authority is boundless. And then for this, in Ephesus, for this small band of Christians, Paul says what he has said before. Christ, the head, is using and employing his power for the good of his body, the church. Uh, Zach Trotter is in the membership process at Philadelphia here. I've known Zach for a long time. Uh, we were we were roommates in college, and for uh, a season when he was when we were in college, he worked one summer up in Washington D.C. And uh, I told you already my love for Washington D.C. I love going to visit, so we use it as an excuse to go visit him. Me and some friends, we we walked around. We saw kind of the normal sights. We would go see. Uh, you can go to the mall and go to Smithsonian. Uh, but one day, Zach arranged for us to go visit his office, which was pretty great because Zach wasn't just like working as a tour guide at the Lincoln Memorial. He was working for the White House. And uh, he was working in the executive, uh, the Eisenhower Executive Office Building, the EEOB. And he was like, hey, do you want to come, come look around? <laughs> yeah, we want to come look around. Who gets to go there? And so the only way that I got in that building is not because I said, hey, I, I just want to, I'm here to do the touristy thing. Show me, show me around. I got in there because Zach said, walk very close to me, and I'm just going to tell them that he's with me. And I got in those places because Zach was using his power and saying, I'm going to use it to bring you along. His authority granted to him brought me along with him. Christian, Jesus has all authority. Every power belongs to him, and he could use that to crush us. In our sin, he could use that to dominate But he is love, and he has died and risen again, not so that he could just show his bare power, but so that he can bring his people along with him. You've perhaps heard the verse, uh, Romans 8, 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Friends, that is only true, because Jesus is risen and reigning, and he is the head over all things for the church, for the body. His people. Now that's, that's the picture we see in the text. God's power demonstrated at the resurrection of Christ. And when Christ is raised from the grave, we see that he now reigns over all things. So, what changes? Why, why see that? 
And what happens when we see that more clearly? Why does Paul spend his prayer asking that our eyes would be opened to see this spiritual reality more clearly? I'm sure you can, uh, maybe even, I'll encourage, if you want some lunch discussion, uh, maybe even with 76 of your favorite friends, here's something you can talk about. What is it that changes when we see the power of God in the resurrection? What changes from me? What effect does that have on me as a follower of Christ? I, I, you can talk about, you could probably talk about for the rest of your life, the Bible is a lot of ways just unpacking that. But I just want to point out three things I think should change in us when we see the risen and reigning Christ. And the first is that we fall down in submission. We fall down in submission. One of my favorite movies as a kid uh, was called The Sword and the Stone. In it, there's this little boy whose nickname is Wart, which tells you about how he's treated throughout the movie. He's an orphan who's brought into a family and... He's looked down upon, he's belittled, he's constantly made to do the menial chores in the house. But then at the very end of the movie, he does this miraculous thing and he walks up to a sword that's set inside of an anvil and he grabs it and he pulls it out. And when he goes and hands the sword to someone, they go like, that's, that's not just any sword. And they go back and he does it again, he pulls it out. Nobody can do it, nobody can pull it out, but, but he does. And when he does it and everybody sees that he does it, what happens is that everybody around him, the whole city of London at that time, they fall on their knees and they start shouting, Hail King Arthur, which was his given name. Hail King Arthur, long live the king. And then his, his father, his adopted father, his brother who had mistreated him for his life, they, they too, they fall down and they say, Hail King Arthur, forgive me. Friend, you may be here this morning, and this may be the first time that you have seen and told that Jesus is the resurrected and reigning king of all the world. Maybe more likely, in a crowd in Birmingham, Alabama, you may have been to church many different times, but if you just stop and you examine your life and you say, who who is my king? Who is the queen of my life? You may say, you know what? I I recognize that I can say I believe Jesus rose from the dead, but he's certainly... I'm certainly not living as if he is the king of all the universe and the king of my life. You may even like what Jesus does and says sometimes, but you've not submitted yourself to him and cast your life at his feet as the risen and reigning Lord. And friend, if that is you today, we want you to know, based on the word, that this Jesus died so that people like you and like me could come to him and find forgiveness. And he receives us, not as traitors, but as citizens when we turn to him and trust in him. And if that's something that you want to talk about, if you've not done that before, if you have questions about that, I'll be down here after the service, down front. I would love to talk to you about what it means to trust in Christ, to live with him as your king. You can find any Christian in this, in this church. If you're going to lunch with friends or family afterwards and you have questions about that, I would invite you, just ask them, what does it mean for me to trust in Christ as the king of my life, as the king of the world? The second thing that changes when we see him rightly, we should stand firm with faith and with strength. We can stand firm with strength. The world can be a a very scary place. Kyle prayed for some of this earlier. We can take as much shelter as we want. 
But whether it is a diagnosis that you did everything in your power to avoid, or whether it is an act of evil in a school in Nashville, every one of us will be reminded that there is no place in this world where we can go, where we can escape from sorrow and suffering and sin. And so people have always been searching for ways to tap into power, to tap into spiritual power even. Where can you find a power that protects us from evil, that brings us peace, a power that will address your very present fears? There are some people, I've, I've met some people who have turned to crystals, to talismans, to objects that they believe, here's where strength lies. It's This thing has an aura of protection that it gives to me. Many people throughout history, and if, if you travel outside of, of America for the, uh, to lots of different places, you'll find many people going to shamans and witch doctors. I got, I got an email from a mission partner of ours in Tanzania, uh, from, from Christ Fellowship Church who's in Tanzania, who asked us to pray for a family because this man who's afflicted with, with suffering is going to see a witch doctor. And that's happening all over the world. They're finding, trying to find particular people. Say, if I go to this person, that's where I find spiritual power. He or she is tapped into it, and I get it from them. Probably most popular today in a place like Birmingham, Alabama, in a place like the United States, where I doubt there's lots of witch doctors in business, is we're told that spiritual power lies hidden deep within yourself. You should tune out the world around you, stop listening to others, and find the power deep inside within you. Friends, God, the true God, he wants us. He has made us so that we may know spiritual power. And those are found in him. The crystal in your pocket is a pretty rock. The psychic or the witch doctor that you go to see that you say, I'll find spiritual power in that person. They, they may be a sham. They may just be... Uh, they may be confusing people and they may be lying to others. They may be tapped into a spiritual power that you do not want to mess with. And the farther you dive within yourself, the more I think that you find that you are broken. Maybe you find something that you can solve for a moment, but not for long. You may solve your anxiety, but your depression may come up in some other place. The way that we stand firm against the forces of evil ultimately is only in the one who has conquered evil. The one who has already beaten Satan, the grave, and death itself. Friends, our God has infinite power at his disposal and he uses it for the sake of his people. Now, what might that mean in our lives? How does, tangibly, what does that mean for God, God's power to help us to stand firm? I've got three questions. Just think through some tangible applications of this. Have you ever felt like you are powerless to fight sin? Your addiction, your lust, your anxiety feels like it's, it almost feels like it is a power. Like it is operating independently of you and fighting against you. For those of you in Christ, the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life means that the God who raised Jesus from the dead is now fighting with and for you against your sin. The spiritual forces of evil who would delight in your faulting, your, your falling and your failing. They are not abolished, but they are defeated. And we should not go looking deeper in ourselves for the inner strength to fight, but look, look to the risen and reigning king. Look to the one who has all authority in him for the good of his church. Pray to him. Do what Paul does here. 
I ask that God would open your eyes and help you see and apply, know the truth of God's power and victory over spiritual forces of evil battling against you at the cross and in the resurrection. Find in Christ new power to stand firm against sin. Have you ever been discouraged in your evangelism? You've shared the gospel with somebody for a dozen times. You get a missionary report back from a friend who's serving overseas and they tell you that the work is slow and arduous. Friends, this discouragement is natural, but it does not mean that Jesus is not in control. It's why Jesus says in Matthew 28, do you remember the thing that comes before go and make disciples? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The risen and reigning Christ is not impotent to open eyes and to change hearts. It doesn't mean that the task is easy. It doesn't mean that there's not resistance, but it does mean that every resource needed to bring people from death to life, it's not in you, it's in him, and he wants to work it. So continue to speak the truth with joy and confidence in his power. Ask the Lord, Lord, give these people spiritual sight. Have you ever felt afraid of death? Satan, we're told, revels in our fear of death. It makes us cowering. It helps us, it keeps us from doing the work of making disciples, of being salt and light in the world. It makes us shelter. But the resurrection, we're told, frees us from bondage to the fear of death. In the resurrection of Jesus, we know that death is a defeated enemy. It's not yet destroyed, but we know that that day is coming. And every power both in this age and in the age to come lies defeated at the feet of Jesus. And so it may not be easy. It may not come with the joy that you hope, but the defeat of death means that for those who are in Christ, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And that's the resurrection, life and power, brothers and sisters. That is the only way that we stand firm against the forces of evil. We look with hope at what we have in Christ. And that's the last thing that changes with this clearer sight. The last thing that happens when we have clear sight that to meditate on today. We look forward with hope. And I'll just close with these words that we will get to sing together in just a moment. So even as we sing in a moment, just think through the words that we're, we're saying back to God and to each other. Unto the grave, what shall we sing? Christ, he lives. Christ, he lives. And what reward will heaven bring? Everlasting life with him. There we will rise to meet the Lord. Then sin and death will be destroyed. And we will feast with endless joy. When Christ is ours forevermore. Do you see God's power securing that for you? Do you have that kind of hope? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that by your power you have risen from the dead and you have conquered sin and grave and death itself. Lord, give us strength to stand. Not because we are great, but because you are. And we look forward to that day, Lord. We, we pray you would come quickly. 
And that you would bring this reality to pass. That death would lie defeated and destroyed. We ask all of this in the name of the name of a risen Jesus. Amen.